In our previous study in the seventh um, chapter of the book of Nehemiah, uh, we considered the fact that the walls were complete and yet we were not halfway through the book of Nehemiah. And we determined that the reason for this was that there was much work left to be done. But the focus would now change from the walls to the people, from material to the spiritual. It is interesting that in the first seven chapters, Nehemiah wrote in the first person, but in chapter 8, he changes to the third person, identifying a definite shift in focus. And what we have recorded in the text is how the spiritual work was undertaken, the laying of the spiritual foundations. And it is to this that I want to devote our attention towards both tonight and also next week. So I'd like to read uh, all of Nehemiah uh, chapter 8. And of course we'll commence reading at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the streets that was before the water gate from the morning unto midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Amathiah and Shema and Ananiah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Messiah on his right hand and on his left hand, Apadiah and Mishel and Malchiah and Hashem, Hashbedanah, Zechariah and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads, and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, and Benai, and Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodjiah, and Messiah, Kalaita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is uh, the Tershatha, got through the names, I messed that one up, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God, mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make our great myrrh, but they understood the words that were declared unto them. And on the second day we gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. 
And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month and that they should publish and proclaim in all the cities and in Jerusalem saying, Go forth unto the mounts and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths every one upon the roof of his house and in the courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. Also day by day, from the first day unto the last day, he read in the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. Amen. And the title for the sermon this evening is The Problem of Bible Illiteracy. Let's pray. Our Father God, thank you for giving to us your word. You know, thank you that we can confidently believe that what we have recorded before us is indeed the Word of God. And we know that it contains exactly what we need. It's sufficient, it's relevant, it's necessary. You know, Jesus made it clear that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we ask now as we come to the teaching of the Word that you would feed us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now recently a particular issue that is crippling the church, Christianity and our culture was brought to my attention and the suffocating agents that has been masterfully crafted by the wicked one that has a tight stranglehold on the majority is Bible illiteracy. You know, I read some of these stats that prove the point that society is suffering from this deadly disease. These American surveys were conducted by recognized agencies, and I tell you that because some of the answers are somewhat ridiculous. Fewer than half of all adults could name the four Gospels. 60% couldn't name five of the Ten Commandments. 82% thought God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. One poll indicated that at least 12% of adults believed that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. (laughs) A group of graduating high school seniors were surveyed and over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. A considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was a sermon preached by Billy Graham. So this highlights the crippling problem within our culture. We don't know the Bible. But this is also true within the church. Christians are not being Bible people. One poll surveyed almost 3,000 regular Protestant churchgoers. And only 19% admitted to reading the Bible on a daily basis. And let's be honest, people always lie in surveys, so it probably isn't that high. Varying Bible society surveys suggest that it is as little as 15% of regular church attendees read the Bible on a consistent and regular basis. 
And this is why biblical illiteracy is a problem in an epidemic scale, for there is a great famine in desiring the Word of God. And my friend, is it any wonder that this world is full of weak churches and weak Christians because the Word of God means so little? And many fail to fathom the utmost necessity of the Scriptures in their daily lives. Nehemiah, he knew the importance of the Scriptures. He understood that for the people to be spiritually restored, the Word of God needed to be proclaimed. He knew that the Word of God through the work of the Spirit is the catalyst of spiritual change. All spiritual revivals, whether individually, locally, or nationally, always begin with a renewed focus on the Word of God. And Nehemiah chapter 8 is a great illustration of this. There is a renewed focus on the Word of God, which through the work of the Spirit wrought a great spiritual revival, which was necessary for this nation to flourish and prosper. This was the second and most important part of Nehemiah's mission. The walls had been restored, now the people needed to be restored. And it is the beginning of this that we will focus on this evening. The walls were finished on the 25th day of Elu, according to Nehemiah 6.15. This was the sixth month. And the events recorded before us, according to verse 2, occur on the first day of the seventh month. Now the Jews had two calendars, as you can see in that front chart. There was the sacred calendar and the civil calendar. The civil was the official calendar of the king, of childbirth and contracts, whereas the sacred calendar was from which religious festivals were computed. And the first day of the seventh month, which is Tishri, on the civil calendar was Jewish New Year's. So the day before us is New Year's Day. It's a day of celebration. The seventh month is also significant, for it is the most sacred month on the religious calendar. Now, if you turn over the page, I have, there's, a little, there's a little wheel, and that has all of the feasts documented. And on the seventh month, you can see that there is three feasts. The first day of the month was the Feast of Trumpets. On the tenth day, there is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonements, which was then followed by the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is all spelled out in detail in Leviticus 23. So this is the most sacred month. Another interesting correlation with this date is that in Ezra chapter 3, the completion of the rebuilding of the altar was also on this particular day. So some feel as though this event was also remembered on this New Year's Day. So this particular day and month is really the perfect time to get right with God and make a fresh start. Now in this 8th chapter, Nehemiah takes a somewhat backseat role and Ezra again comes to prominence. 
Now it's important that we understand that this was not because Nehemiah thought that spiritual rebuilding was less essential or less important, but rather Ezra was the man who was better equipped to perform the task. He was both a priest and a scribe. He was gifted by God to teach the scriptures. And Nehemiah shows impressive leadership qualities in being willing to take a low-key role and allow another to use their spiritual gifts for the greater benefits of the people. We are informed in verse 1 and verse 2 that the people gathered at the water gates. Now this was on the eastern side of the city, and there was a large area, a a large courtyard if you like, where the people would meet. And I've got a picture for this uh, in your notes. You know, when picturing this, it's probably best to think of uh, the town square in larger cities. This is what this area was like. Some commentators have suggested an interesting connection between the water gate and the word of God, citing Ephesians 5.26, where the scriptures are described as cleansing water. But maybe that's reading into it too much. Now, I want you to imagine the scene that is described before us. That there is this large paved area where thousands could fit. They have all gathered behind the newly finished walls. No doubt the walls aided in acoustics. The crowd was men, was women and young people. It was diverse. People from all classes had gathered shoulder to shoulder. According to verse 4, a large pulpit had been constructed. The Hebrew word is actually often translated tower, so it speaks of an elevated platform, like a modern stage. And obviously it's a fair size because it has Ezra and 13 others could fit on it. And here were the people waiting expectantly for the law of Moses to be read. Remembering that most people didn't have a copy of the law. They didn't have a massive scroll in their laps like you've got your Bible tonight. There is a sense of excitement, a sense of anticipation as the scroll is unrolled. This is the scene before us. And I want to consider four attitudes that the people possess towards the word. And it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit will infuse these same attitudes in our hearts, for they are the appropriate safeguard to ensure that we avoid the suffocating stranglehold of Bible illiteracy in our own lives and within our church. So firstly, I want to consider the appetite for the word In verse 1, there is a most staggering scene described. Excitement and enthusiasm has burst its banks and come flooding through the city of Jerusalem. We are told that all of the people, including men, women and young people, all who could understand, had gathered themselves at the town square. And what makes this gathering particularly staggering was the point that it was not forced nor was it arranged by the leaders. Nehemiah didn't send out an edict saying, you must be at this meeting or else. But rather the people had gathered themselves. 
It was a spontaneous meeting. They weren't here out of a sense of duty, but rather there was a genuine desire. There was a sincere longing to hear the word of God. The picture is of a hungering multitude and the crying out, you know, give us Ezra, give us Ezra. You know, they had come to celebrate New Year's by listening to the law of Moses being proclaimed. You know, that would be like Pastor Peter receiving a phone call on New Year's Eve and being told Oaks Oval is full and they want you to come and read the word and preach. And that would be amazing. And you know, it's exactly this that is occurring before us. They had gathered as one, earnestly desiring to hear from the Lord. There was a rare mood of responsiveness among the people. And the question that we must ask is, is what happened? What stirred this up? Well, it's obvious that the Holy Spirit had worked in the hearts of these people, instilling a desire for divine things. As one commentator said, people do not gather together for the things of God unless the Spirit of God has moved them. And they do not desire God's Word unless the Spirit of God has moved them. And also it was the realization of what the law of Moses was. Notice in verse 1 it says that the Lord had commanded to Israel. The law was God's Word. It possessed complete divine authority. It was not some human work of literature, but a divinely inspired document. And they had gathered expectantly and enthusiastically because they believed that God was speaking. And my friend, how desperately we need a renewed appetite for the Bible. A delight and enthusiasm to sit under the Word. A passion and expectancy to read and study, not just out of a a sense of duty or drudgery, which is often the case, but to come to the book with excitement, with a longing and a craving to be fed from the lavish banquet, to be refreshed with the precious water of the words. And we need to be like the psalmist. Have you read Psalm 119 lately? You know, oh, how I love thy law. Thy testimonies are my delight. I love thy precepts. May the Holy Spirit infuse this in our hearts. A renewed love for the word. A reinvigorated passion to be in the book regularly and constantly. You know, we need this just as the Jews possessed this. But it wasn't only this. Secondly, I want to draw your attention to the attentiveness to the word. The genuineness of the gathering of the people is reinforced in this second point. It's made clear that the people didn't just gather so they would be seen. It wasn't just a a tick-the-box Scenario. You know, a case of, I guess, everyone's going to hear Ezra, so I suppose I better go, otherwise people will think less of me. Nor was it the case of once they were there, okay, I've ticked the box, now I can tune out. 
Man, that wall is not crooked. Look at that bird. And they don't hear a thing. It's not like that. For the text stresses they listened attentively. The last phrase of verse 3 says, And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. Notice that attentive is in italics, meaning it's being supplied by the translators to give the sense. Literally, the Hebrew reads, Ears of all the people were to the book. And the imagery is the people had their ear right up to the book to ensure that they missed absolutely nothing. And what's like the child who is so engaged with the TV that they're only millimeters away from it, hoping that they miss nothing. That is the picture. The people are fully engaged, wanting to make sure that they did not miss one drop from the water of the words. These people were so engrossed that according to verse 3, they listened from morning unto midday. The phrase morning refers to daybreak. So this is a five to six hour period of listening intently to the reading and teaching of the word. This is a great commitment. This is a huge interest in the words. And if we are honest, it's easy to struggle with this particular aspect. I know attentiveness is often lacking in my heart. We can sit under the preaching of the word or we can read the Bible in our personal devotions and we're not really committed to it. We know these activities are necessary. We should do them and yet we are not fully engaged. We are not attentive and certainly not willing to put in hours of efforts. Our lack of attentiveness and commitment is shown in the relative, relatively short amount of time that we spend in the Word compared to other activities. And our short attention span when it comes to preaching. Over 30 minutes, Pastor, what are you doing? You know, it's not only you that think that. Sometimes I think that too, even about myself. You know, it's easy to think that. You know, it's very easy for us as believers for our time in the word, either privately or corporately, to become nothing except a tick-the-box procedure. We are not attentive, we are not all that committed. Sure, we do it, but we are not engaged, it's not a priority. Our ears aren't up close to the book. May the Spirit cultivate this commitment and attentiveness within our hearts. May there be a sense of urgency. Now, may we sense our great need, for without the word, we will starve spiritually. We need to be committed and attentive. Thirdly, I want you to see the admiration for the word. In verse 5, Ezra opens the book, or more literally, he unrolls the scroll. And all the people see this. Remembering the pulpit we discussed before, Ezra was above the people. And as the scroll is unrolled, something amazing happens. All the people stood up. This was not commanded by Ezra. He didn't pass around some message telling the people, you must stand. But rather, this was a spontaneous reaction. 
And it was a sign of respect. That's what's going on here. Like when someone stands, when someone important enters the room. Oh, these people revered God's word. They recognized it for what it was. You know, the word of God, not man. And it is interesting that there is no mention of them sitting back down. So perhaps they stood for the whole discourse, an amazing declaration of their admiration for the word. Now there are a couple of points that must be stressed from this public standing for the reading of the word. So number one, we don't have to stand when the word is read to show respect. We must understand that. Now standing for the reading of the word is a practice performed by some denominations, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we did it on Sunday morning. But it's important to understand that it's not commanded here. Ezra doesn't say, thou must stand. Nor does it say that anywhere else in the Bible, that the congregation must stand when the word is read or preached, or otherwise they are disrespectful. And I'm sure you're glad about that. No, but what is stressed before us is not the standing in of itself, but rather what that represented, that being reverence, that being respect, that being awe for the book. It is this that is required. And secondly, we must understand that it's not the book itself that is revered. It is not the book, but the words of the book We are to reverence, and we do that because we reverence the God of the book. The people before us are not worshipping this scroll as some relic that we find in a Catholic church. They are not practicing what we call bibliolatry, and neither do we. Now this term is an English word derived from two Greek words. There's biblion, which is book, and latria, which is worship. And this term speaks of worshipping the book. In the Christian context, it speaks of worshipping the Bible, elevating the Scriptures to the point that it is equal with God. And that is wrong. We would refute that as false theology. We worship the God of the Bible rather than the Bible itself. That's an important distinction to make you know we respect the scriptures because it is God's word and you know my friend we don't need to stand like the Jews but we do need the same reverence we do need the same respect and we do this by not making light of the word not mocking it rejecting it or ridiculing it but rather Reading it, studying it, obeying it, submitting to it. And yet how often we can be rather nonchalant. As one commentator said, we often defend the Bible as the word of God, but we don't always treat it like the word of God. You know, for how often we neglect it, we reject it, and we fail to subject to it. You know, a dose of reverence will do wonders to cure biblical illiteracy. Number four, and the last point I want to consider, is their adherence to the word. Upon having the word read 
and faithfully explain the response of the people was vital. You know, we know what James chapter 1 says, don't we? About not being just a hearer of the word, but a doer. In verse 13, some of the chief fathers, they were the heads of their varying families, had extra teaching from Ezra. And as they were taught, it became obvious that the Feast of Tabernacles had not been celebrated as prescribed in the law of God. In fact, in verse 17, we are told that not since the days of Joshua had this been observed. Now, this declaration presents a difficulty. Because if you have read the story of Solomon, the story of Hezekiah, or the story of Josiah recently you would have read that the Feast of Tabernacles was observed. So how do we explain this? Well, the Feast of Tabernacles involved two distinct things. So number one, it was a time to commemorate the harvest. And number two, it was a time to recognize the wilderness wanderings after the exile from Egypt. So at this time, the people would build little tents out of branches and dwell in them to remind them of what it was like in the wilderness, which should have led them to give thanks to God for all that he had done. Now, in explaining why the text says this hasn't been commemorated since the times of Joshua is explained like this. So firstly, some say that the harvest celebration had been remembered But the second part, the building of booths, had been rejected since the time of Joshua. And this is why so much detail is given before us to show that the people made the booths and dwelt in them. And another explanation that is common is the fact that everyone did this. This is stressed in verse 17. All the congregation, this unity and this national celebration had been neglected since the time of Joshua. And this leads me to the point that I want to stress, the fact that the people obeyed the word of God. They read that they were, that they were to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, and then they did what they were instructed to do. That they were zealous to do exactly what God had commanded them to do. In our vernacular, they wanted to do His will. They wanted to be doers of the word and not mere hearers. And my friend, that is the challenge that we need regularly, isn't it? We are not just to read the word, but obey the word. That is the required response. If God said it, we will do it. That is the necessary attitude. And we must submit to and obey the word of God through the power of the spirit in every area of our lives. For that is how we grow. That is the sanctification process. Remember the words of Jesus, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. And my friend, obedience is a necessity. Remembering obedience reveals love. Do you remember the words of Jesus? If you love me, keep my commandments an appetite attentiveness admiration and adherence four necessary attitudes that we need to possess towards the scriptures in order to avoid bible illiteracy 
something that is crippling our culture, it's crippling the church, and maybe it's crippling you. Now, for this problem to be resolved, there needs to be a renewed focus on the words. And may the Holy Spirit cultivate that in my heart and your heart. You know, may we lead the way. You know, may we as parents and grandparents ensure that our families don't suffer from this by teaching the word. May we who are church leaders ensure that our church doesn't suffer from this by faithfully teaching the words. And may we make sure our own souls don't suffer from this because, my friend, when we fail to read the word, when we fail to obey the word, what we lose is devastating. I want to draw your attention to the end of verse 17, which says, And there was very great gladness. This was the result of them listening to the word and obeying it. It brought them gladness. It brought them great joy. And this too will be our experience. It is my prayer through the work of the spirits that a renewed sense of excitement about the word would be cultivated within us. That we have a, a renewed focus on the scriptures for then great joy and gladness will come flooding into our hearts. The Bible is a precious book. It's a glorious book for it is the very word of God. It is powerful, it's transforming, it's relevant, it's sufficient, it's necessary. You know, may we cherish it for the true treasure that it is. And much joy and gladness will come flowing out as we live in the Word. For as we are in the Word, we come to know the One who the Word is all about. Our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. And who wouldn't want to know Him better and walk closer with Him? And my friend, that's what we will get when we are men and women of the book. Amen.